from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 27th. Today, doctors investigate a new surprising COVID symptom why the economy might not recover quickly, and the truth about OCD. So we have multiple COVID ICUs in multiple hospitals. Craig Coopersmith is the interim director at the Emory Critical Care Center. And I have a daily text with all the COVID attendings to make sure that everybody's seeing the same thing or seeing different things. And so if somebody says, I've seen this, is anybody else seeing this? If nobody answers, it's probably a one-off. But in this case, somebody wrote saying, I'm seeing an increase in, in blood clotting. And about 10 seconds later, somebody in a different ICU texted, I'm seeing the same thing. And a third ICU said it. And a fourth ICU said it. And all of a sudden, it became very clear that this wasn't a one-off, that this was a pattern Everybody was seeing the exact same thing. And once we understood it internally, then we started talking to our colleagues around the country. By the time New York really got hit very hard, the notion that there was widespread clotting in young people in ways that were unanticipated was now firmly entrenched. Lewis Kaplan is a general trauma and critical care surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you just explain, like, what a blood clot is and why it's potentially something bad? Whenever you have an appropriate trigger for clotting, this congealed mass, that congealed mass is red blood cells, it's platelets, and it's fibrin. The body actually does this remarkable balance to know when to clot and when to bleed. And so if you start bleeding, if you get a cut on your hand, You don't want to bleed to death. You want your body to be able to form a clot. And at the same time, it knows when to break it down. And so blood starts flowing again. Typically, these are in balance. What we're seeing in COVID-19 is them remarkably out of balance. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of clotting, way more than we would typically expect to see in the ICU. So what typically happens is blood clots form most commonly in the legs, although they can form at any place in the body. And then they can break off and they can go to smaller blood vessels where they can stop them up, prevent blood from flowing. So the most dangerous type of blood clots, and there's many, is something that we call a pulmonary embolism. And so a blood clot forms in the leg, it breaks off of the deep vein in the leg, and it ultimately goes into the lungs, and it shuts off one of the major blood vessels in the lungs, and that can kill you. We also are seeing a lot of what we call microthrombi, small clots, that are going all over the body to the kidneys, to the liver. And we're seeing this on on autopsies of patients who've died. Do you have a sense of how many people end up having a problem with clotting? It's not the majority, but it is a significant number. And the more we look, the more we're finding. So when you say that you've seen patients that are experiencing abnormal blood clotting, how do you see that? Uh, There's multiple different manifestations. One of the first ones we saw was uh, clotting off of dialysis machines. So when we put people on dialysis machines, we use a fairly large catheter that goes into a big vein that generally has pretty high flow. It is uncommon to have clotting 
around that catheter in a significant fashion. That's not what we're seeing now. Now we see where the catheter goes in having clotting problems. The filter has clotting problems. There are clots in lots of other places in the patient's body as well in ways that we would not have anticipated before. In addition, we were seeing these pulmonary emboli that I talked to before when you see blood clots that break off and go to the heart. So we knew from the experience in China that a lot of patients were having issues with their hearts. And so we were looking very closely with echocardiograms or ultrasounds to see what the heart was looking for, to see if we would see the same thing that they saw in China, which was a diffuse, the whole heart not working. And that's not actually what we saw. What we saw was a specific type of the heart not working, the right ventricle, and right ventricular failure is typically caused by a pulmonary embolism. This type of blood clotting, is it something that you would typically expect to see with a respiratory illness? No, absolutely not. We're seeing something fundamentally different in the COVID patients than we've seen before. So the obvious question is, why is this happening? And so far, nobody really knows for sure. The answer is, we're trying to figure this out as a medical community. But there is one theory, according to Dr. Kaplan. We're starting to learn a few things. And it's a theory that connects the mysterious blood clotting with two other strange symptoms that have started appearing in COVID patients. We started to hear about GI symptoms. People that were having nausea and they were having diarrhea as manifestations of COVID disease. That didn't seem to make sense for a respiratory pathogen. There have also been questions about the strange secretions that have come out of the lungs of people on ventilators. When you put people on a breathing machine, you put a tube between their vocal cords and into their airway. Everyone has secretions. If you've ever seen someone in an intensive care unit, you know that the nurse or the respiratory therapist periodically has to suction secretions out of that tube. But in the case of COVID patients, those secretions tend to look different. They're kind of reddish, and they also tend to be made of different stuff. They have lots and lots of cells from the, the lining of the lung. Many more than what we would initially anticipate. And that begins to raise a question. Does the, this particular virus infect and impact the cells that line your respiratory tree and cause them to be shed. Because if that is true, if that's what we're seeing, and the virus can be in other places in your body, then you could link respiratory symptoms, GI symptoms, and unexpected clotting all from the same process. The diarrhea could be because you're shedding cells in the lining of your GI tract. And the clotting could be because you're shedding cells that line your blood vessels. Your bloodstream is really a protected space. And once you disrupt the inside barrier because the virus has infected those endothelial cells, when they shed and they come off the wall, they expose everything else in the wall. When you expose the subendothelium, it drives clotting. And now you can have clots form in lots of places where they shouldn't because that protective inner lining is no longer there. And so that when you try to think about a unifying process to explain lungs, GI tract, blood vessels, this could be one of those processes that 
that ties all of that together. Again, this is still a theory. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that that sounds really tidy. It could even be true, but it's probably not all of the story. And then in terms of of treating for this or making sure that blood clotting doesn't become a bigger problem, is the protocol for this just that you give everyone who comes in with COVID like a lot of blood thinners? So we're not starting everybody on blood thinner drips or high doses of blood thinners because the problem with giving blood thinners, the good thing about it is it prevents clotting. The bad thing about blood thinners is they can cause bleeding. What we are doing is we're trying to, and each center is doing this differently. There's some national guidance, and I hope that more will be forthcoming soon. What we're doing internally is we are risk stratifying patients to determine their risk of having a clot. This process that you're describing of trying to draw conclusions on the fly about what kind of patient is the one who's most likely to have blood clots, and that feels like the kind of thing that would usually happen like in a clinical study or over a long period of time, but that it's all happening really fast right now. And you're just kind of like drawing these conclusions as you go along. So yes, and uh, for sure, everything is on a markedly accelerated time frame right now. Uh, nothing that I've seen in my life has been anything like what we're seeing in COVID, where what ordinarily would take a year can get done in a day or two days. Hmm. And what would typically take you a month can get done in an hour or two. So on the one hand, everybody is working on an accelerated timeframe because this disease didn't exist six months ago. We saw our first patient here at the beginning of March. And at the same time, it's critically important that we actually follow the scientific method and that we rigorously test everything that we can. When we saw our first patient here, I probably had in the first day 15 different people suggesting 15 different treatments. In these three patients in Italy, I know they did well. In these two patients in Spain, I know they did this well. And so that's not data because you have no idea how that patient was going to do without the therapy. And it's important to then ramp back and say, you know what, everything is not a miracle cure. And we really need to test these agents because if we give everybody everybody's miracle cure, what we're going to find is some of them at the end of the day might be helpful a bunch of them are neutral, and some of them are actually harmful. And in an attempt to help somebody, you might end up killing people. It seemed like in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak, there was this common belief that like, COVID-19 wasn't actually anything that unusual, that it was similar to other coronaviruses, that it was sort of like the flu. But it sounds like the more that we study this and observe its long-term effects, that's being proven wrong in a lot of ways, that it's actually much more complicated, much more nuanced, in some ways much more fascinating than, than I think a lot of people saw from the outset. That's accurate. So it's not like the flu. COVID-19 is different. It's more infectious. It's causing globally a higher mortality across the world. It's causing new things like clotting that we've never seen before. If it wasn't such an unbelievable human tragedy, wearing my scientist hat, I would say that this is fascinating and it will give us years of things to study. Just like patients, disease processes will humble you. The things that you think you know, maybe you don't know. And something always shows you that there is 
yet more to discover the things that we thought we understood. We now need to learn more. And it leaves you feeling somewhat helpless because all the things that you know how to do somehow seem inadequate when faced with dying patients. Craig Coopersmith is the interim director at the Emory Critical Care Center. Lewis Kaplan is a general trauma and critical care surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania. We're opening our country. It's very exciting to see. The country is a great place, and it's going to be greater than ever before. I really believe that. Over the past week, the White House has predicted a strong economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. I think there's going to be a tremendous upward shift. They've talked a lot about something called a V-shaped economy. I spoke with Tim Cook today of Apple. And they have a good sense of the market, and he feels it's going to be a V. The V is sharply upward later on as we actually get it fully open. You know, think about it like a kid bouncing a ball. You know, it goes down really hard and it comes back really hard. His Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said that again over the weekend on the Sunday shows. So I think as we begin to reopen the economy in May and June, you're going to see the economy really bounce back in July, August, September. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent at The Washington Post. But what is the reality and and what economists are saying is the most likely scenario for what the economy will actually look like? Well, nobody really knows. It's obviously an unprecedented situation. But given how hard this economy has the hit that we've taken, we've got 26 million Americans at least who've lost their jobs. We've got a number of businesses that are starting to go bankrupt and starting to default on loans. So given this widespread pain that's going on, economists think it's a lot more likely that this is going to be a very slow recovery. And the number I keep reminding people of that I just get really scared about is, yes, we have 26 million unemployed now, but the median forecast for the end of the year is that we will still have 15 million people unemployed. And that's the same amount that we had during the worst of the Great Recession. So we're talking about keeping that kind of pain around for a long time in the economy. And so how are economists predicting that that economy will actually shape out if it's not a very quick bouncing back immediately? Yeah, so forget the V idea. Uh, the new letters that come up the most often are a W or sort of a sideways J, almost like a Nike swoosh. And both the W and the Nike swoosh are, are not going to be fun. I just wrote a piece that I think people aren't talking enough about the W possibility. And what I mean by that is... Sure, we could have a bit of a bounce back as the economy starts to reopen. And for instance, this 
PPP, these small business loans with the Paycheck Protection Program, they require small businesses to rehire employees by June 30th in order to keep this money. So you could imagine that there'll be kind of a rush around June 30th to rehire quite a few workers in the economy. But what happens after that? And that's where I think you could get another bounce down to create this W effect later in the year. What I hear constantly from small business owners, especially restaurants is, yeah, sure, I can rehire these workers at the end of June after I get this loan. But if my restaurant's only open, you know, with half the tables full for most of the summer, and people are still hesitant to come out and and dine in and eat and spend like they used to, and this economy limps along for months and months, they're going to have to uh, let workers go again in the fall. Some of them won't survive. Some of these restaurants and other businesses will end up closing in the fall or in around the holiday time. And that's the big scare that everyone's trying to avoid. I think a lot of people understand the health risks, that if we reopen the economy too fast, there could be a surge, another surge in coronavirus cases and deaths. And that will have huge pain for the country, as well as economic pain. And so many of the things that we are worried about starting to happen in increasing volume, things like bankruptcies and defaults on people's credit card bills or on their mortgages, those are the kinds of things that would start appearing more over time. They're not necessarily immediate, but they will start happening. That's right. It's starting to happen. We're starting to see retailers like Neiman Marcus or Macy's trying to either raise cash desperately or else consider declaring bankruptcy. But you could easily see more businesses doing that, especially small businesses in the months to come. A lot of people remind me, look, this PPP small business loan program is great, but it only gives you about two months worth of payroll and a little bit of operating cost. That's not going to be enough if we're in a scenario where social distancing and these types of measures have to remain in place through the end of the summer and possibly into the fall. Uh, That's according to Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator. Again, you cannot operate with half your tables, half your seats full, half your gym class going for months and months to come. And what role does the government play in this? Because people have been hoping that the stimulus package will help float a lot of these businesses, but it's already clear that there's not enough money to go around for everyone who's in need. And is there a chance that they're going to be putting more money into the economy to try to save some of these businesses? And and if that does happen, will that be enough to actually prevent this kind of W-shaped economy? Probably the most terrifying thing to economists that's happened in the last few days is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that he thinks it's okay for states to go bankrupt and that he's not so keen to pump more money into the economy until we see the current batch play out. Yeah, I, I'm in, I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy uh, uh, route. It saved some cities, and there's no good reason for it not to be available. Uh, my guess is their first choice would be for the federal government to borrow money from future generations to send it down to them now so they don't have to do that. Uh, that's not something I'm going to be in favor of. If there's one lesson 
that everybody learned from the 2008-09 financial crisis. It's that we need to keep injecting money. Uh, we need sort of rounds of money, if you will, to go out to help the economy through a, a really tough situation. I mean, we're sitting here in the worst economic downturn for this country since the Great Depression. And that's going to take a lot of effort to get out of. So the ideal, we've obviously pumped a lot of money out there so far, over $2 trillion. It does seem to be having some positive effect. But you can easily see the scenario where we are going to need certainly more help for states and municipalities. And then probably another big stimulus, maybe around the 4th of July, as the economy begins to reopen to sort of give that push to get these businesses through the summer and into the fall. So if we're in a situation where a V-shaped economy, like a really quick bouncing back, seems pretty much a pipe dream. And a W-shaped economy seems like in some ways the worst case scenario where things are getting worse over the course of the year and not better. Is there any in between, like a, a type of bounce back that is both attainable and also a reflection of, of responsible choices by the government? Well, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer put out an idea over the weekend that's getting a lot of traction. He says this economy could actually get back to something pretty close to normal this summer. But there's a big if, and that if is the United States would have to test every American and probably have to do that about every two weeks. Doing universal testing, as it's called, testing almost everyone, is really the only way to not only ensure that we are addressing the health crisis, so we know who has this COVID-19 and who doesn't, who needs to be quarantined and who doesn't, but it would also be the only way to reassure people that it's okay to go back to restaurants, it's okay to go back to gyms, it's okay to go back to baseball games. And unless you have that certainty, what we're seeing in China and Germany and South Korea, places that have already tried to reopen a little bit, is places are half full. The subway in China is, is less than half full. The casinos are nearly empty. The economies there have not come roaring back because there's still this fear factor, even after the government gives the okay for some places to reopen. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. One more thing about a psychological term that you might be misusing. Ever since the coronavirus pandemic started, I saw different people online kind of throwing around this idea that people need OCD right now or people should have OCD right now. And that kind of got me thinking that this might be a good time to educate people about what it's like to live with OCD. It's not all about hand washing, which is you know, so often the portrayal of OCD in pop culture. My name is Lindsay Sitz, and I am a video editor on the creative video team. OCD, which stands for obsessive compulsive disorder, is really about your anxiety center in your brain kind of going off the rails. And 
It's almost like having a bully inside of your head. And this bully is trying to convince you that if you don't perform certain rituals or compulsions, then bad things are going to happen. So my OCD started when I was probably 10. I didn't know what it was. I was rereading pages in books over and over and over again. And my parents noticed and took me to a therapist and that therapist kind of told them, oh, don't worry about it. She's just anxious. And so they thought everything was fine, but actually it just really got worse as I moved into my preteen years. And I was very obsessed and had a lot of obsessions about people in my family getting hurt or, you know, like I was afraid if I wore a certain pair of jeans, my mom would die. And so I would have to like stuff those jeans really far back into the closet. And a lot of times I would just like never wear them again. I think some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about OCD are that if you have OCD, you're very neat, you're very orderly, you're very tidy, you like things organized in a really particular and specific way, and that maybe you even get some like enjoyment about it, about being organized or being neat and tidy. And I think that's where a lot of the offhand comments that people make like, oh, I'm so OCD because I color coordinate my closet or like, I'm so OCD because I have to alphabetize all my books. And I think that a lot of times people see it as a quirk when it's not, when you're really living it and experiencing it, it's not like a quirky, cute little thing. It's like, it's a very distressing, real disorder. So while you might be experiencing a lot of heightened anxiety right now about hand washing, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have OCD. It just means that you are being a rational, responsible person in the midst of a global pandemic and you are just following what the CDC says. Lindsay Sitz is a video journalist for The Post. If you want to learn more about OCD or think that you might need help, Lindsay says that there are great resources at iocdf.org. We'll link to that in our show notes. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And thank you to the folks who have posted reviews of the show on their podcast apps. One listener who goes by Jerusalem J said that they don't even watch TV or Netflix. But Post Reports is the one thing they listen to every day. These days, that is very high praise. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 